podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to the Wagon Wheel Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Kimber, and this show is part of the 99.94 Network. On this show, we record weekly with questions from the audience via Spotify Live. This podcast is funded by Patreon, which you can join by clicking a link in the show notes. And there are many other benefits, but one of which is to ask questions first on this show. All right, let's get into some Patreon questions. If you've come over, you'll hear my voice is not as rosy as normal. Commentating on the last two tests with some sort of virus has, uh, has affected me. Although, to be fair... I did a podcast this morning where I could barely speak, so huge uh, way up there. So I'll go as long as my voice does. James says, if the ACB, now Cricket Australia, held their line against negotiating with Kerry Packer for broadcast rights and no compromise was reached with World Series Cricket, what would the cricketing world look like now? I think coloured clothing would have come in anyway. That You can't use the red ball at night, so we would have needed some form of ball at night. In some ways, when Kerry Packer did the deal with Cricket Australia, the players still got kind of screwed in that. Kerry Packer got what he wanted. The players went back. It actually took quite a while for them to sort of rebuild back up, which is why Cricket Australia got a players' union. I think, and which is now the players' union by the majority of the countries in the world. Um, uh, so I think I think there might have been a player union earlier. I think the players would have worked out their worth. Um there might have been more rebel tours before apartheid finished from many different countries, is my guess, uh, because a lot of those top players just weren't earning. I think coloured clothing and white balls certainly would have happened anyway, so I'm not too um, different on that. I think really what happened was that the game was filmed very differently. We would have had a company that work, would have worked that out regardless. That's not to, not to say that what Kerry Packard's crew did wasn't revolutionary and didn't change the way we looked at cricket. Because it did, and someone was telling me recently that Christopher Martin Jenkins wrote a piece where he said that fans would never like the fact that there's a camera at each end because they like the idea of sitting in the stand um, and uh, and that's what the TV experience should do. So it tells you what some of the thoughts were. Christopher Martin Jenkins is not a stupid man, but even he couldn't quite get where we were going with this. Um, so I think Kerry Packer's broadcast changed a lot of cricket um one of the big things for me is if you read cricket writing we're just closer and some of that's technology but a lot of that is stuff that you know Kerry Packer and obviously Channel 4 had, had a part of that Super Sport have done some good things and 10 Sport and you know Sky um but it kind of all comes from Channel 9 so the coverage of the game is different I think that if you were a professional cricketer or professional cricketer as they were back in those days outside of England I think there was going to be a reckoning when it came to professionalism regardless because you couldn't, you know, we. I, I say this based on the fact that rugby doesn't have Kerry Packer and rugby union still had a professional movement later than cricket, but it still had it. So I think a lot of the things that happened would still have happened. What Kerry Packer's uh, organization did by forcing Cricket Australia um, into this deal, by stealing all their best players, by putting on a better pro uh, 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 series, um, uh, by filming it better, by advertising it better and everything else, probably set the temp template for what modern cricket is. We might still be in that situation now, but maybe we'd go in a different direction. 
Interestingly enough, I've talked to a lot of people in rugby over the last few years. They actually think that rugby being one of the last sports to professionalism probably helped them more. Um, and in Packer's case, what happened was it was kind of like a small step towards professionalism that almost had a step backwards almost immediately, uh, whereas rugby kind of had a bigger boom. So I do wonder if in that particular case, uh, cricket might be in the same or even a better situation without Packer. But for anyone who grew up in the 90s, we, we got access to cricket in a way that no one else did. And for that alone, I can't imagine. I mean, it was in the 1990s when the BCCI had to sue the um, uh, government TV company to get cricket off. They were actually paying to put cricket on the TV at that point. So you can see how far behind some of those markets were at that point compared to Channel 9, uh, where the opposite had happened with them and Cricket Australia. Ian says, looking at Johnny Bairstow's incredible knock from the other perspective, as a bowler in that situation, how much advice is typically, typically being passed from the captain, staff in the dressing room, uh, how much is a bowler just left to try and figure it out on their own? Uh, there was a lot there yesterday, Ian. Um, Tim Southey wasn't bowling at the time. He spent a lot of time talking to Matt Henry, probably less time talking to Trent Bolt, only because Trent Bolt is, you know, knew a lot, although he certainly was chatting to Trent Bolt. Uh, Tom Latham was coming across as well. I thought Tom Latham, which makes sense because he's not a massively experienced captain, probably didn't work out ways to slow the game down to give the bowlers a little bit more time. From the dressing room, it's really tough. I mean, if you think about it, I think me and Jeremy Coney worked out that they only tried the short ball tactic for 15 or 16 balls. Um, and of those 15 or 16 balls, I don't know how many boundaries were there, maybe six or seven. How do you get the information out quick enough? How do you, you get that across? Uh, I think they went out, I think New Zealand had a plan at T, which was, okay, they got on a bit of a mini roll before T, let's go with the short pitch bowling. They didn't have a bowler for it. Matt Henry didn't really look like he knew what to do. He didn't know how to get the ball up high enough, sometimes even slow enough, if that makes sense. He got the angles wrong. It's a short boundary. They only did it for 16 balls. And yet, by then, the genie was out of the bottle. I do think if you go through my PC and you'll see that I think that they should have come up with a lot more ideas. But if I was the analyst in that situation, and, and I should say, I've been the analyst in that situation. Uh, when I worked for St. Lucia Stars, Darren Bravo did something very similar. We tried to get the information out um, and Darren Bravo was already on a bit of a roll. And by that point, um, we were sort of playing catch up and, and we tried some things that could have worked and didn't. And then at the end, there, I think there was just a bit of a panic on the field, which is exactly what I saw with Tom Latham. And, and you see these things, you know, Adam Gilchrist, Ian Botham, you, you watch some of those innings. Uh, it, it's really interesting actually, because these innings are happening more and more but Gilchrist did this against Pakistan in 1999, 1998, whichever year it was. Once it starts happening to you, it's really easy to go, what can happen next? In that moment, the first thing is panic because it's all happening so quickly. And I think that that's part of the problem with what happened with New Zealand. Cameron says, how do you find such interesting, seemingly obscure guests? Do you find them or do they find you? Well, I'm... Uh, well, I'm obscure. I don't know how um, interesting I am. But um, no, a lot of them are my friends, if we're being honest. I follow oh, quite a few people on Twitter. Uh, you know, I obviously keep an eye out on, um, I've got a few apps that, that, that come up with things. Um, you know, 
I used to spend more time on Reddit. I probably don't spend much time on Reddit. Um, usually, if if between series, I, um, I would, you know, I might go to Reddit see what people are talking about. But I think I just read a lot, Cameron, as much as anything. And um, you come across these things. There's sort of a what's the best way to put it? Almost like a a Silk Road um, type uh, thing below the main part of the media. So you know, you will follow George Dobell and Andy Zaltzman and. Uh, Barrett Sunderason and, and these sorts of, you know, Mel, Mel Farrell and um, those sorts of people. But there's also a really interesting sort of group beneath that who are all, also sharing things. And I probably follow a lot of them um, and just keep my ear to the ground. But also I think obscure, not maybe not obscure. <clears throat> I don't go, for, I don't think, oh, this is an obscure person. I kind of go for this is an interesting story. So if I've read something, it might, it might just be a line in an article about someone and I'll contact them and bring them on. Also, don't forget, I came up through social media and blogging. And so, you know, I don't have, I mean, I've got a very big interview lined up uh, very shortly with a player. It's not particularly easy for me to always get those. And in fact, if I had a producer, I probably, we would probably have more big people. What is e easier for me, especially at the level that I'm at, is to go, I should be able to find an interesting person every week. Or any, for me, it's an interesting story every week. And some of those are obscure, probably because that's kind of where my my mind sort of goes to. Um, but that's kind of the point of the podcast. I I didn't want it to be something like Final Word, or because um, that already existed. I didn't want it to be something like Great Cricketer, because that already existed. I didn't even want it to be like Cricket Sadist Hour. You know, my previous podcast with with Zoltzman and briefly Gideon Haig. Um, because all those things existed. So I was like, well, what can I do? And I really wanted to be able to tell a great story every week. And especially, I think Red Inca, I've had that idea for a long time, but especially was fresher to me when I went freelance and it's very much harder to sell features. And I was like, great. Okay, well, I can't sell these features, but is there a way to keep talking about the sorts of things that I used to write for Crick Info? And I think that's where it comes from. But I think it's just my natural, you know, my, my, my natural style. You know, I could get more famous friends on, although they're always busy. Anyway, what I really wanted to do is make sure I can make a podcast work with interesting topics. And it seemed, well, every, I suppose most of the people um, on the Patreon already agree with that. So um, thank you for your support, Cameron. And I will continue to find weirdos because I am myself a weirdo. Not that you called them weirdos. Um, and now I feel like I've outed some of my friends as weirdos, which they are. James says, Anderson and Southie are both outswing bowlers. For Anderson, that means he can swing the ball both ways and moves it away from both right hand and left hand, but for Saudi means that he moves the ball right to left. Uh, swing it away from the right hand, but into left hand. Is there an easier terminology to describe the difference? Yeah, so um, Saudi is an outswing bowler and Anderson is a swing bowler. Um, is the best way of probably putting that. We probably don't quite use proper terminology for these sorts of things. Anderson can swing the ball both ways and Sally can only swing it one way. So you could say it's a one-way bowler. Uh, the most common kind of swing, of course, is what Sally does. Uh, if you have a look, there's almost no left-arm bowlers, for instance, who swing the ball away from a right-hand batter, which is what was a, was a macram so incredible. Um, it's very rare that you see that. So, yeah, I think I think I see Sally as an outswing bowler and Anderson as a swing bowler um, in that it can do both. The only other thing I would add to that is um, with the wobble ball becoming more and more common, it may not matter, James, because 
Almost no one's coming into the game as a swing bowler anymore. And we already had that. West Indies had already trampled on swing bowling by getting a bunch of tall guys to wang the ball into the pitch. Um, but I think more and more we're moving away from traditional swing. What you might get is perhaps players who have that as a secondary um, skill. So the wobble ball will be their main ball or seam bowling in general will be their main ball. But on certain days, they have the ability to swing it, which is probably more what we're seeing coming through at the moment. Uh, although in the future... I just think that swing bowling, as brilliant as it is, gives probably batters too many tips on what is happening out of the hand, um, whereas wobble ball and seam ball don't. Um, so it, the future of swing bowling is really interesting. It's already changed a lot. <laughs> Aditya says, in your assessment, who are the best openers in tests and ODIs that you have seen? I'm particularly interested in your assessment of Gavaskar as a test opener and Rohit as an ODI opener. Well, I haven't seen Gavaskar as a test opener, really. Uh, he was a little bit before my time. I'm sure I saw him play. I mean, the same way I probably saw Boycott play, but I don't remember them. Uh, best test openers. I suppose if you're looking all surface that I have seen, I would probably... It's probably hard to go past Alistair Cook for his ability to make runs when the ball swings, when the ball bounces, when the ball spins. Saywag and Warner are obviously, and Hayden are obviously a lot more destructive. But I think when you look at their records, there were certain places where they couldn't play. Um, they might be, they might have been more talented than Alistair Cook, but they might not have got that talent out of them. I'm trying to think of anyone else. Um, and Graham Smith's probably just a step below those players, um, though I think he's fantastic. Sorry, he's obviously fantastic as well. Trying to think of anyone else that I, I mean, I saw Greenwich and Haynes, but again, I think, well, I certainly saw Greenwich on the back end of his career. Haynes was a very good player, maybe not quite on that level. Uh, in one day cricket, uh, well, I suppose Sanus J. Saria changed the game forever. It'd be very hard to go beyond him as a player. It's a bit trickier because obviously strike rates plays a much more important part there, Aditya. Yeah, as far as Rohit goes as an ODI opener, my thought was that what India were trying to do was essentially be two for 200 in every game. And Rohit Sharma completely played into that. And then obviously he had the ability, once he was in past the 30th over, to score at a very quick rate. That's a different impact than what Jason Roy has in a game. And I wouldn't say that Jason Roy is on the same level of talent as Rohit Sharma, but Roy and Bairstow have a, have a completely different impact on, on the game in that they can score so quickly that the game disappears in a, you know, in a sort of a Gilchrist, Sanus Jayasuriya type way. So yeah, Rohit's really interesting because it really depends on whether you buy into the Indian model. And being that India haven't won a lot of trophies, you'd have to say that the game slightly moved on from the way that they play it. Uh, Warner probably comes into this as well. Um, I don't, I, I can't, you know, I don't, I can't remember. Weirdly, I remember more details of test cricket than I do of one day cricket. So I kind of, I would have to do more research on that. But yeah, with Rohit, it really depends on whether you like that method. In some ways, Rohit Sharma is Jeff Marsh. And I don't know how old you are, did you? But his, the idea of Rohit Sharma is to bat as long and as deep into the innings as, as possible. You know, Australia basically told Jeff Marsh to try and make 100 as, as, as many times as possible and have everyone sort of explode around him. Rohit's slightly different because he had Shikha Darwin, obviously, as well, had Virat Kohli. So they had about three of them who were all going to bat quite deep into the game and then allow for the sort of explosions at the end, which I think that Virat Kohli 
Rohit Sharma, maybe even maybe not Shikhar Dhawan, but I think that I wouldn't say that they played with the handbrake on, but I didn't think they did the job as well as Owen Morgan and Joe Root did. Not not that they're openers in those middle overs, considering that they were already set and what they could have done. But I also understand that uh, Joe Root and Owen Morgan could push a bit harder because their batting lineup went so much further. So. It's a really tricky question. Uh, I'm not sure I answered the ODI one particularly well. I think I remembered all the test openers that I wanted to mention. I'm trying to think of anyone else that was absolutely outstanding in, in my kind of lifetime uh, when it comes to opening the batting. There's certainly been some very good players, but I, th I think I got most of the test players there. Neil says, in your previous episodes, you have said that typically left-arm pace bowls are not skillful as their right-arm counterparts and left-arm spins. Uh, would you say Trent Bolt is someone who bucks that trend just watching his two dismissals of Zach Crawley, well-bowled cutters? Yeah. So, you know, when you look at early Bruce Reed, Wazim Akram, Alan Davidson, I'm missing a bunch here, aren't I? Trent Bolt, I feel like I'm missing. Oh, Zahi Khan is probably another one. Uh, when you're looking at those kinds of bowlers, what you are looking at is the similar skills of the top right arm bowlers, but with the left arm, which is why they're absolutely, you know, in Wazim Akram's case, it's why he completely stands out and continues to stand out. It's, it's a thing I talked about before. Even Trent Bolt struggles to swing the ball away from right-handers. He can do it with the reverse. I don't think he does it conventionally ever. And that's because he didn't have to learn that skill because he's a left armor and, you know, don't get me started on why they don't have those skills, but they don't learn those skills. Uh, and, it, and it is a bit silly. I think, so if you look at Trent Bolt in that last game, he swung the ball in. So that is almost a prerequisite for being a 200 wicket taker as a left arm bowler, unless you're massively quick or massively tall. He bowled two different kind of wobble balls. So the ball that you're talking about, the cutter is not actually a cutter. It is a, um, well, it is a cutter, but it's not what they call it. They call it a three quarter seam uh, wobble ball, which is a ball that Kyle Mills, I believe invented, um, Tim Southey perfected. And now uh, Trent Bolt is bowling and he bowled a traditional um, wobble ball as well. Most bowlers now have to make a decision that they want to be a swing bowler or a, a wobble ball bowler because it's very hard to go between the two, is what they tell me. I can't bowl, well, I can bowl out swing, although my arm's a bit bugging now, but I can't bowl it, you know, either. So I don't know if that's true, how true that is, but that's what top level bowlers are telling me. So think about this in, in, in one spell, he's bowled two different kinds of wobble balls and he's swinging the ball. That tells you what level Trent Bolt is, and that's why Trent Bolt, had, you know, is a proper bowler. The kind of when we're talking about we're talking about left arm bowlers with limited skill sets, you're looking at you know your Rahat, Rahat Ali is probably a very very good example of someone like that. Of he could bowl 85 to 90 miles an hour with his left arm, he could swing the ball on occasion, wasn't particularly skillful with it. Uh, Mitchell Johnson when he played for Australia, and he was struggling. The other Australian bowlers didn't like him because he couldn't bowl seam up. He would damage the ball. He wasn't skillful enough to do that. So there's a, you know, even Mitchell Stark uh, has really, really struggled to swing the ball consistently outside the very new ball. Um, and it's taken him a long time to nail the wobble ball consistently as he has in the last probably few matches that he's played. But if you are Mitchell Stark and you're six foot seven and you're an incredible athlete and you bowl fast, well then being left arm is a huge advantage. If you're Mitchell Johnson and you have that, if you're Rahat Ali again and you have these extra pace, I think part of the problem is that we don't work on the skills of left-arm bowlers in the same way, and also left-arm bowlers don't buy in the same way that right-arm bowlers do. But I think a lot of it is just to do with the fact that 
to be to be a left arm fast bowler, you have to be from the ten percent. Uh, chances are you're not going to be able to bowl with your non-dominant arm, um, and I think that's there's just not as many of them, um, and and so it's a little bit different. But for whatever reason, it, they don't seem to develop these things. They they're very good usually at developing their one or two skills that make them international bowlers. They're not very good at being. I don't think Trent Bolt's close. Uh, well, actually, outside of Wasamakram, maybe you throw Trent Bolt in. I wonder if we've ever had a left arm. You know, a left arm. We we don't have a lot of Muhammad Asifs and Stuart Clarks and Vernon Philanders and in left arm. They just don't exist. I'm trying to think if I would put side bottom. I mean, side bottom was kind of a bowler with a peak, and he was actually bowling pretty fast at that point. So yeah, I just don't think we have those kinds of bowlers, and I think that's the most important thing. The same way we don't have a lot of left arm finger spinners who bowl the Karen ball and Dusra, and you know, most left arm finger spinners basically just go wang, wang, wang. I'm doing this on the video, and I just realised that. You guys are listening on the podcast, but you know, they just land a ball on a spot over and over again. Whereas off spinners have to be better than that because they're spinning the ball back in the right hand is that I have to be smarter. Surf says, when you do umpire in training, you are taught that no one, absolutely no one is allowed on the pitch after the toss without your consent. How's it the TV presenters get to circumvent it? They just go out there. Surf is the best way of putting it. They get told off all the time, but they do. In the recent England, New Zealand match, one of them, can't remember who it was, was traipsing all over the middle section of the pitch. I can understand them walking on the side or edges with their flat boots, but yeah, they shouldn't be walking down the middle. Uh, yeah, it's fair. You've got to remember that there are so many people out on the ground. And so the ECB have a woman called Michaela um, who works out there. Um, I don't know how old she is, but I don't think she's particularly old. And you're talking about her telling maybe a former England captain, maybe a former New Zealand captain, maybe a legend of the game to not walk on the ground. There are some people in her job that do it. There are some curators who were very harsh on it. Um, she may not have seen it as well. She might have been dealing with BBC in one corner. And I don't, well, I, Michaela had to take me out on the ground because I was taking photos. You've got the nets, uh, you've got radio, you know, got all these different things happening. Spark TV for New Zealand. But you're right, they shouldn't really do it. it it's a real pissing match sometimes as someone who's been out there before watching the form. I, so I never go inside the, um, the ropes on the pitch, even if I'm allowed to. Um, I always stay on the outside um, just because I don't think I need to stand on the pitch to have a look at it. Unless there's no ropes up, I might have a little bit of a look just to get, get as close as I can. But I certainly don't never stand on the pitch. But I think there's a lot of ego involved too. You know, Shane Warne walks out there and you're another big name player. You might want to go out there too. And there's also the, just the push and pull between the cricket boards and the broadcasters. Uh, broadcasters are looking for more and more and they pay a lot of money and they think they deserve that. So, yeah, you're right. It shouldn't happen. But there are ground, uh, there are curators and boards that don't care as much. And so you can do one series where you're allowed to do anything you want. Then you turn up the next series and like getting on the ground is really hard. So getting on the ground at Lords is hard, even if you're allowed to. So it's a very weird one. But so if you're right, as a, as a umpire, uh, I don't, always think the umpires are out there. And the only time I was ever told off, and I wasn't even that close, was by an umpire. So it might be that the umpires are a bit harsher than everyone else, um, but they're not always right there. I mean, the umpires are having conversations with people as well. They're being asked a million questions. It's a bit of a madhouse when you're out on the ground. So you've got, usually you've got nets on either side. You've got co some kind of fielding drills going on. You've then got camera crews running on and off. There's at least one, two, maybe three camera crews. You've got probably one radio crew. You've probably got 
one slash two cricket board social media groups out there. It's an absolute madhouse being out on the ground. Um, it really is. It, it's crazy. Um, and I think it's not a particularly easy thing to, oh, I don't even know the best way to put it, of, of um, it's not a particularly easy thing to police in any sh way, shape or form. Um, there's so much going on. Plus, sometimes you get hit by balls. Abhilash Singh says, who will be remembered as the better test cricketer, Joe Root or Virat Kohli? Well, at the moment, I think it's going to be Joe Root. I would have said that Virat Kohli had a better peak, but maybe we haven't seen Joe Root's peak yet. Um, if Kohli is on the decline, then you would assume that Joe Root is not. <laughs> and so if we have another five or six years of Joe Root batting, you might have a similar situation to people, the way that people talk about Lara and Tendulkar. I think there's still a lot of people, probably myself included, that would say that Lara was the better player on a single day than Tendulka. But if you look at their entire careers, Tendulka clearly had their better career. Um, it might be a similar situation with Root and Coley as well, is my guess. Um, Fitness-wise, love of the game-wise, um, batting-wise, Root seems right at the top. Coley seems blocked. Now, Coley's still young. Things can change. He might come back and be incredible. But as it currently stands, if you're putting your money, you would put your money on Joe Root, I would assume. Nadika says, do we know how bats came to be made of willow? Have we tried other materials? Yeah, they've certainly tried other materials. Um, I don't know how they became of willow. I mean, we don't know a lot about the game. Someone else may know this, um, Nadika. Uh, we don't know why the word cricket is used to describe cricket. So... You know, there's a lot we don't know about our sport because it started so early. We have tried other things. We've tried other forms of willow. Um, we've also tried um, other types of wood. Nothing works the way that English willow does. There was a disease a couple of years ago, which I think has slowed down, that was attacking English willow trees. And there was a big problem at that point where, remember ESPN in America wanted me to write this big feature about how, you know, we would have to change what cricket bats were made of. And I think there was a lot of people in the bat industry I suppose, at that stage who were concerned about that. That seems to have gone away now. Um, but yeah, no, certainly, uh, you obviously there's cashmere willow, there's Australian willow. Um, there has been uh, other kinds of wood used as well. Um, for whatever reason, English willow just seems to work the best. Um, it does have drawbacks. Um, uh, and could obviously, it also makes our sport incredibly susceptible to one kind of tree. And considering we never really... Invest that well in these things. That could be a problem. Satchmo says, are Root and Anderson the best England batter and team bowler since Hutton and Truman, respectively? Are they both in your best England, 11, 6, 9, and 45? Root and Anderson, the best batter. Okay, Hutton and Truman. Yeah, Root and Boycott is an interesting one because Boycott was an opener. If we're just talking test cricket, which I'm assuming we are, I don't think there's that much between them. Obviously, I think Root has the ability to change a game because he bats a little bit quicker, I'd say he has the ability to change the game more. So I think he probably still gets in ahead of Boycott. Obviously, KP is probably, I suppose, the other player that's on that on that list. And I think all things considered, Root is certainly a better player than him. Anderson, the best seam bowler since Truman. Yes, I think especially when you factor in longevity, I don't think that's even close to anyone else. Also, the ability to stay ahead of the game and continually grow. There might have been bowlers with more talent than him. Um, another, you know, maybe someone like Jon Snow, um, perhaps even someone like Bob Willis um, at times. But I would have thought, and, and obviously, 
you know, someone like Goffey away from home, um, uh, even Andy Caddick as well. But, but when you put the whole thing together, I think it's impossible not to have um, Anderson up there. Um, are they both of my best at England? I mean, yeah, well, Root certainly is. Um, Anderson, I would probably put Anderson in. I'm trying to think of so many England team polls. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think. I can't think of anyone else off the top of my head that we're going. So, yeah, there we go. Thanks, everyone, for the Patreon questions. Now, let us get to the group. I'll just run through a couple in the uh, chat. Siddharth says, will we get to a stage where the average speed in test cricket becomes 140? I think, weirdly enough, we're seeing a lot of bowlers slow down a little bit um, of recent times to because of the knuckleball, not knuckleball, the wobble ball. Uh, we've got to stop calling everything with ball on the end, don't we? But yes, you, you will always get specialists. It's a bit like baseball, that the average speed keeps going up, but that doesn't mean you won't get a, a, a baseball pitcher who pitches very slow. And I think we'll always get specialists like that. You still get very accurate tennis servers, despite the fact that tennis serving speeds continue to go up. But we're already seeing the average speeds faster and faster um, over the years. Um, it's very rare now to see a um, an attack that doesn't have someone over, well, I was going to say over 90 miles an hour, but even over 85 miles an hour, that wasn't the case, um, you know, looking back uh, at cricket, certainly. And we now have attacks where everyone is over 85 miles an hour sometimes. Again, there weren't that many of them before. It's not that people couldn't bowl fast, but there weren't, weren't as many. So, yeah, I would assume that the average people to continue to go up um, unless there's another revolution in fast bowling that changes that. But everything I've seen from when the speed gum sort of becomes popular through to now, suggests the bowling is just a lot faster than it's ever been. Um, England have changed their pitches. What type of bowling attack uh, do you need on batting-friendly pitches? What should India's attack be? I mean, I don't think we know what pitch they're going to have for Edge Bastard. Um, uh, when you say England have changed their pitches, I'm not quite sure what you mean by that, Dio. Sorry. I think that India have the chance in any team in any test to use five bowlers, um, which means that they should have a fast bowler, a seam bowler, a swing bowler, and the two spinners. That works everywhere. I don't think you need to make too many big sweeping changes when you're playing England because you have five options and you should have everything covered. You can spin the ball both ways. Um, you can get the ball to move in the air. You can rough them up if you need to, um, and you can get any nip off the pitch. That will probably be my um, lineup. They'll probably go with two seamers, not a swing bowler, uh, which, to be fair, seems to be the modern plan. And then, you know, a, a faster bowler around that. James says, just wondering what you think Bradman would average in today's test game if he was teleported into the game. Oh, well, not very much. Um, you know, the, the sport that he played no longer exists. For instance, DRS has completely changed LBWs and the way that he played, knocking the ball um, across uh, across the line as he often did, uh, would is much tougher in in today's cricket because of DRS. Um, the bowlers are so much faster. The spinners are so much faster. The deliveries are new. Um, the pitches are harder. He would have had to play in more diverse conditions. So let's say, I don't know, we take it from nineteen thirty two. Um, and we just, or well, maybe 936, let's 
Let's give him a few more years of experience. We just drop him in. He's facing Bill Vos. Can't think of another left-arm bowler that he faced much of. So he's facing one left-arm seam bowler to be successful in test cricket. Um, And he has to go up against, you know, teams with, uh, you know, he might have to go up against Wagner and Bolt, for instance. They're faster than the bowlers he faced. They bowl completely differently than the bowlers he faced. So I think if you took, I I mean, I couldn't give you an average because it's such a different game, but he would struggle. If Bradman grew up in 1990, that's, which is, you know, you're saying you're not asking that question, but if Bradman grows up in 1990, that's really interesting. If, you know, he still has the, the way to read, if, if he can, his big thing was the way he read the bowlers. That still would be incredible. Um, he also had an incredible work ethic, which a lot of players do now. So maybe he has a better way of, of using his work ethic, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not sure. But yeah, no, if you took him from 1936 and just dropped him in here, I think he'd really struggle. Just the height of the bowlers. So, so he played in the back, uh, in the back foot no ball era. And so bowlers bowled lower from their release points. Suddenly he's got Carl Jamieson bowling to him, you know, Mornay Morka bowling to him. Um, Muhammad Ifan bowling to him. How does he handle that? It's, you know, off the front foot with their, you know, um, with their bowling. Also, we just we know he was a very good player of spin, and we know that he played on uncovered pitches when you know spin was given a bit more um, help outside of Asia. But we don't know specifically how he would have done in Asia. If he played in Asia and here's the era, he would have dominated it. But how would he go against Ashwin or Akshar Patel? or Rangana Harath, et cetera, et cetera. It's a, it's a brilliant question. Uh, if I end up doing a video on it, it's your fault, James. But it is an absolutely brilliant question. And then you, you have asked how Chad Sayers would go in Bradman's time. Um, look, I think, I think Chad Sayers, uh, at his pace, with his skills, would have been absolutely incredible. You know, I think if you drop any of those bowlers back, the batters would struggle a bit more just because of the bats because of the pitches was so different to what we have now. But if you put a guy who can bowl 80 mile an hour outswing into, into 1930, it's probably going to be at least five, 10 miles an hour quicker than most of the outswing bowlers of that era to begin with. So he's probably closer to a genuine fast bowler. If not, I, I can't remember what Chad says up our level was. It was probably 85, wasn't it? He'd certainly be one of the fastest bowlers in the world and he's bowling outswing. Like if you put Ben Hilfenhaus you know, and we're not talking about someone who dominated cricket in any way. And you chucked him back. He's, you know, he's probably the best bowler in 1930. Um, and, then, and, and then again, you know, if you put Neil Wagner back, for instance, uh, I know you're talking about guys slightly less successful, but um, if you put any of those sort of skills back, uh, it would be really tough. Also, the front foot no ball thing, as I said, again, it's the height and the bounce uh, would really bother those older players on on pitches that could be, I think uncovered pitchers get a bad reputation sometimes, but there was probably still times when uncovered pitchers was a huge advantage um, to everyone there. Um, oh, who have we got here? Oh, I thought someone requested to chat and they're gone. Uh, if you do want to request chat, just chuck, chuck your hand up. I won't do much longer, although my voice has stayed together better than I thought it would. Praveen says, why don't players use zinc anymore? I think... So zinc was very much probably something that came out of Australia and New Zealand during that period where everyone was getting skin cancer. 
and the nose specific. So you get very dry lips. So I think zinc was to stop you getting dry lips, although it never stopped me getting dry lips. And the nose was the thought that the nose is obviously the thing that gets, I don't know if I get skin cancer the most. I'm not, I'm not an expert in skin cancer, although um, my parents have had it a bunch of times, but I think the nose is a place because of the way it sticks down on your body and et cetera, et cetera. So I think it comes from that. My guess is though, what I remember back in those days, you would put sunscreen on and it would be like SPF 25 or 20 or 30. And the zinc would be like SPF 50, 60 or 70 or whatever. There's like someone who's an expert in sunscreen and, and zinc who's going to come across this podcast and be so upset at everything I'm saying. But that was my memory of it. Whereas sunscreen now, you can get really high SPF sunscreens. So I would assume it's more to do that. I also think that just became a fashion uh, that players thought they looked cool in the same way that those big wraparound sunglasses players thought they looked cool. And, uh, you know, those sorts of things, uh, you know, spread all the way through the game. Um, and now, so, so you remember in the nineties, Saïd Anwar, was it Saïd Anwar? Or was it Amir Sahel? Might've been Amir Sahel, Martin Crow, a couple of others wore like things under their helmets. Um, uh, almost like headband, uh, not, not headbands, but like um, uh, cloth under their helmets. Um, and of the pl only recent player I know who does that is Chris Gale sometimes wears like a do-rag under his, his helmet. I don't think there's that many players who do it anymore. But in the 90s, there was quite a few people who did it. And if you think about it, it's actually making it hotter. Um, and it's a bit of a weird thing. I think things just become a bit of a, a fashion. Um, I certainly wore you know something under my helmet um <laughs> because other players did no i put zinc on my nose because other players did um uh, we actually have zinc in our house that we were given at like a cricket event once it comes in little cricket balls we never put it on our kids because they've just got sunscreen on them um and zinc gets everywhere zinc ruins your clothes here we go here's my hottest take people stop wearing zinc in cricket because if the zinc is usually white and you wear creams rather than whites, even though we call them whites, and the zinc goes on the whites, uh, on the creams. Now I'm confusing myself and ruins it. Hottest take in sport, people stopped using zinc because it ruined their clothes. That could be wrong, but there we go. Huge thanks to all our sponsors. Uh, who have we got? Manscaped, Bodyline T-shirts, rocking the uh, Kirtley Ambrose today. Who else do we have at the moment? LinkedIn Solutions as well. Big thanks to all the sponsors for getting involved and obviously everyone on Patreon. And buy me a coffee, anyone who's involved there. Anyway, you could support us, whether financially or just tweeting or telling your friends about the podcast, all those sorts of things. They all help. And thank you for coming on today and chatting, everyone. And also thank you to my voice for not breaking. I'll see you again next time. Thanks for listening to Wagon Wheel on the 99.94 Network. For more information about us, go to 9994dm.com and you can also sign up for our beta launch. And if you have listened this long, you probably like what we do, and that is great. So please rush over and support us on Patreon, which has many extra advantages the podcast doesn't have, like asking earlier questions. And if you want more content, well, I have good news for you, because we have a lot of things. You can follow us on YouTube where we make all kind of crazy stuff like the complete history of New Zealand opening batters and how Kagisa Rabada was dismissed from a zombie ball. 
We do a similar thing on TikTok. I also have an emailer that sends out a couple of columns a week, and we run another podcast called Double Century on the History of Cricket. Red Inker is made by me, Jared Kimball. Nick McCorriston is our sound maestro. Makundra Bandredi presses record on the videos and then falls asleep. Orajasi Sampati makes the podcast into video gold. And Shubanka Bhattacharya makes pretty, pretty graphics. Pretty, pretty graphics.